Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 352 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find a wonderful writing community and writing courses. I'm here with my partner in crime, A.L. Tate, Alison Tate, author of the wonderful book, new book, The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. How are you, Al? I am surprisingly okay, given that we are in the middle of the school holidays. I oh, am, yeah. I'm on the fair to middling end of things, which, you know, for this kind of current set of circumstances is pretty much like saying I'm top draw. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fair to middling. Are you fair to middling? Yeah, because I ate too much for lunch and, um, you know, just... <laughs> so you've actually, you know, you're just a fairly large middle is what you're saying. <laughs> Nothing to do with fair to middling at all. What did you have? Let's talk about just... our lunch. We never talk about our lunch. <laughs> Let's discuss our lunch. What did you have? Just food from the fridge, you know, like I made a salad, but it was rather gigantic. And I the other huge salads. Like huge. I am the big salad. You know, wasn't there like a Seinfeld episode where she went and ordered the big salad? Oh. I am the big salad. Every day I am the big salad. Today I had a huge salad because I had leftover bean salad and chicken and it was just I am full of beans. <laughs> but do you <laughs> but does it make you too full? No, because like, I was mm. starving because I had to get up early. Um, so Book Boy had a, a radio interview this morning that meant I had to be up and, you know, oh. looking vaguely presentable and out the door right. for breakfast, you know, for, for breakfast radio, which is always very early. Um, yes. And so I, you know, I kind of managed to, like, I'm not a huge breakfast eater and when I do have breakfast, I like it later. Like I'm not mm. usually a 7 a.m. breakfast girl. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of, you know, I shoved down a piece and a half of toast and then, I didn't really get a chance to eat again until about, oh, like, you know, 2 o'clock. So by then yes. I was, you know, I needed those beans, baby. Well, here's the thing, right? So okay. that actually reflects my day a bit in that I didn't, I was starving and mm. then I had quite a late lunch but had too much fridge food, had too much salad and mm. therefore don't feel 100%. But the worst part is okay. I've got my Friday afternoon Oh, so we're recording this early on a Friday this week. Um, yep. I've got my Friday afternoon chocolate donut ready for <laughs> afternoon and, tea. And, and, and yet you've got no space for it. it. Yes. Oh, so, that's not you know, good. Anyway, so, so <laughs> thank you, listeners, anyway, for indulging this conversation. You I know. Here is actually, a podcast. Yes, you are actually listening to so you want to be a writer and uh, we have a bunch of interesting links this week and we want to kick off with one that's just really cool and it was in The Guardian and uh, it's an article called Barefoot, Barefoot Bookseller Sought to Run Island Bookshop in the Maldives. I mean... How cool would that be? Well, look, judging by the number of times that I saw this particular article shared yes. on social media, um, I would say that there's an awful lot of people out there that think that it sounds like a great job. And I have to say, like I had mm. a good hard look at it myself because can you think of anything better than just oh. like being on an island and you have to be there to be like to help, a bet, you know, bespoke help to for guests for their reading journeys while they're on yes. holidays. Like, oh. I know, pretty good. That. So they have had uh, three barefoot booksellers since 2018, but then the most recent one had to leave in April because of um, coronavirus. But obviously the Maldives is now reopening to international visitors and they are looking for another bookseller who's happy to get some sand between their toes, recommend some books. It's pretty good. Pretty Listen to this. Like I think, like like if we were just going to imagine a perfect job for Al, mm. let's just have a think about this for a minute. Yes. The job application calls for excellent written and verbal English skills, tick, mm -hmm. a tick. lively tone of voice to write oh, yeah. entertaining blogs sure. and newsletters that capture the exhilarating life of a desert island bookseller, tick, I can do lively, mm. right, yeah, and yeah. the skills to host workshops and events, which I've done as well as a can-do attitude with a strong understanding of working independently. Who's yes. got stronger understanding of that? I, You know, if it wasn't for the sunscreen situation and the fact that I was permanently burnt, I would be there. 
Well, I think that you would be, you know, there's a lot of competition because they said that the last time they advertised, they got thousands of applications from all over the world, including including lawyers, IT managers, White House press corps, (laughs) film directors, everyone. All right. So, okay. Yeah, so the competition. You're thinking the competition might be fierce. Oh, we could podcast from there though. We could That'd add the great. additional every single week. I could just like phone it in from there. Yes. Yes. With some waves in the background. I oh, think that could work. So wonder how mm. they feel about children and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to, we want to alert everyone to the fact that the Horn Prize is on and that is a collaboration with the Saturday Paper and ESOP. Now, this is really good. Some of our listener community have actually won the Horn Prize in the past uh, for their mm-hmm. essay. Um, but you not only get hello, to... Hello, Anna Spargo-Ryan. Yes, hello, Anna. Yes. Hello, Anna. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful article that she wrote for the Saturday paper. So not only do you get published in the Saturday paper, you receive a whopping 15,000. Yes, I, this is not... What's the verbal equivalent of a typo? This is not a typo. That's pretty good. Do you think think it would be a talko if it was a a spoken word? This is not a talko. $15,000. I know. $15,000 for an an essay of exceptional quality, no more than 3,000 words. That's kind of my sticking point because I was like $15,000, but for a 3,000-word essay, that's that's a good word rate. It's amazing because, like, to win the Vogel – you have to write a whole book, which is, you know, maybe 70,000, 80,000 words, and you get $20,000. So I think mm. for bang for buck, go for the Horn Prize, hey? Absolutely. But it's such a specialist skill. Like it's such yes. a such yeah. a specialist skill. And so if you are interested in doing this, my suggestion would be that you have a very solid look at some of the ones that have won in the past mm. um, and, you know, read some literary yes. magazines um, like Island Mag and different ones that print, that, that actually publish, you know, really good quality essays all the time because mm. it's um you you need to immerse yourself in what is expected it's it's yeah. a it, you know for fifteen thousand dollars it's got to be good so entries close on 9th of november 2020 we'll put the link in the show notes now mm. we also have a really good article on the australian writers center blog from alison rushby called making make writing fun again <laughs> The lovely um, Alison Rushby. So Al Rushby is a friend of mine. We are Alan Al, and we um, she's the co-host, uh, one of the co-hosts of the Your Kids Next Read group uh, yes. with me and Megan Daly. And she has just recently brought out a new uh, middle grade novel called When This Bell Rings, which yeah. is an absolute cracker. It's a story within a story. So if you, you know, and a literary world mm. within a literary world. So it's um, it takes a fair bit of of uh, you know magical skill to bring that off, mm. and uh, she. She does such a great job with it and it's probably because she is a spreadsheet plotter and that mm. is how she um, manages to get these things done and she yes she does actually collapse in horror every time I tell her how I write my novels but that's okay um, so she's written this great article about how to bring the joy back to writing because I think um, mm. when you're writing a lot or you're really you know like you're, you're struggling to achieve publication or you're pushing towards you know getting published or you've got another another novel to write or whatever it can sometimes uh, be easy to lose sight of the fact that writing is actually a really fun thing to do. Um, and I know that that's something that I have, you know, probably struggled with a little bit in the last couple of months just um, with the various things that I've been doing. Uh, so Al has put together um, a list here for the Writer's Centre blog of just some ideas of how you can um, can you know, put the joy back into it. You know, she had a few tough writing days herself when she was writing Mm. When This Bell Rings because she had set up this huge task to create the fictional world within the fictional world and then it just becomes like hard work and how am I going to do this? Um, So she talks in this post about some of the things that she did to stop herself from, as she puts it, going insane in the (laughs) process Um, and she has a couple of great little ones here. Um, She has a... a, um, a site called Written Kitten, and yeah. she's a cat lover. So I just need to put that out there right now. She um, is my people then. She is your people. And it, for every 100 words that you write, you, you get a brand new picture of a kitten. Now, this is not something that would probably work for me, but, you know, 
I, I would need, you know, I don't know what would be the puppy version of that. I know. <laughs> but um, you can adjust it. You, you, if 100 words is too frequent for you, you can make it every 1,000 words or every 500 words. You can adjust the word count so, you know, it doesn't become too distracting. Yeah. Well, the next one probably works better for me because um, it's called 750 words. And if you mm. are the competitive type who likes points and badges yes. and things – were you a prefect, asks Sal. Yes, now that you mention it, I was, um, funnily enough. Uh, then 750 words might be for you. Um, you. You form a new writing habit. You have to write at least 750 words per day and you get a badge and you get, you know, it's a bit like NaNoWriMo, I guess, but in sort of smaller smaller doses. And, of course, you can then talk about it on Facebook about how great you're doing, which is, yeah. you know, another, another thing that some of us might like to do. <laughs> Yes, yes, and it's very effective. <laughs> it is very effective, funnily that. Um, but, yeah, so Al's got a whole bunch of different things here. She even gives Write a Book with Al a shout-out. Yes. But, you know, um, that's in hiatus at the moment while I while Al struggles with Edit a Book with Al. When are you, are you, you going to do Write a Book with Al again? Hashtag Write a Book with Al. Hashtag Write a Book with Al. Well, I, I'm going to um, – so my current plan of attack is to finish um, editing – Maven and Reeve 2, which is what mm. I'm working on at the moment. Um, then I'm just going to have a good lie down because oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually pretty tired. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have a good lie down for you know, at least a week and then um, then I'll probably be looking for something new to do. So maybe I'll start then. I don't know. We'll see. So we'll what, see. like no, November, December? Well, possibly November. I, I've got a few friends trying to talk me into NaNoWriMo this year. Oh. Maybe. Um I'm not too sure. I, I, I honestly feel sometimes like you uh, need to get off the treadmill a little bit to yeah. just kind of refill. Remember we've talked about this in the past, just refill that creative well. And yeah. I kind of feel like after this year mine is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit dry at the moment. So I might look at um, doing some different things for a while just to see. We'll see. And it, uh, stand by, mm. people. Stand by for the announcement. Yeah, fill us in. All right. Mm. Now. Let's talk about you, as in you, the listener, because we really want to hear what you have to say about the podcast. And we do. Fact, we have a survey that we would love you to participate in if you can. Um, and it's a very short survey and your feedback will help us bring your fave types of episodes to you. Um, plus also, if you share your thoughts, you'll go into the draw to win one of three new book prizes. The survey's open until the 31st of October 2020. So just go to writerscentercomau slash survey, writerscentercomau slash survey. Yes. I haven't seen the survey. Is there a, a box to tick as to whether you're team Banoffee or team chocolate? That is, there isn't, but I'm going to add that in. <laughs> and is there a section for what's your favourite section and then the crossed out word of the week? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to answer that, Al. Oh, what? Anyway, let's move on to – we have a competition for you. This is really cool. We have three copies of Just Like You by Nick Hornby. Now, Nick Hornby's awesome. From the million-copy best-selling author comes a brutally funny novel about finding love when you least expect it. The person you are with is just like you. Same background, same age, same interests. The perfect match. And it's a disaster. Then, when and where you least expect it, you meet someone new. You seem to have nothing in common and yet, somehow, it feels totally right. Nick Hornby's brilliantly observed, tender, but also brutally funny new novel gets to the heart of what it means to fall surprisingly and headlong in love with the best possible person. Someone who is not just like you at all. So go to writercentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 12th of October. That's writercentercomau slash win. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? That was a big pause. Like people just thought, totally thought that they had lost the signal of our podcast there. <laughs> they really did. I'm, I'm, I'll look, I'm ready. Like, what can I say? How can I not be ready after okay. all these months? Okay. Now, it's a bit of a hard one. So, <laughs> oh, this, so this, never say... end, this never ends well. You know that. <laughs> I'll say it first and then I'll spell it. Okay. So it's mot juste. So mot, M-O-T, juste, J-U-S-T-E, mot juste. Do you know what it means? 
do you like no <laughs> it sounds like I can sort of see like a, a like a mustache twirling villain when you say that <laughs> okay so it sounds like a legal term but it's not mojust is just is when you've come up with the exact term or expression to fit the circumstances so you might say she took a long time to write her essay because she was searching for an ending that was more just. You could say that, but yeah, you wouldn't. You could, yeah, no, don't. Uh, you, you, might. you might if you were French. It sounds very French to no, me. No, no, no. Because also is, is I just, do a little. Is that just your accent? That makes <laughs> It comes from the French, yes, of course. <laughs> so, I mean, I do. I do, would just like to say, Al, that I do a little happy dance every time I watch a show or read a book or read an article in the newspaper where one of my word of the weeks words of the week come up. I know you do. No, I, that, I, that completely doesn't surprise me. In this, there's no surprise here. No. All right. So that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Let's hear from Sarah Clutton. Hi, I'm Sarah Clutton. I've written two novels that are domestic suspense novels and I've done several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. I sort of got to a stage in my life where I hit middle age, so I thought oh, I'll um, start writing a novel and one day I woke up in the middle of the night and this idea for a novel dropped into my head. I got about 40,000 words into that novel and I realised I didn't know how to write a novel. I, I tried to, to take apart a lot of the novels I'd read and realised that I needed more help. I did it online because I live in a country town, so the online course suited me perfectly. The practical workshopping and all of the wonderful feedback we got from the other participants in the course was really excellent. I still workshop with a girl I met through that course who um, is a writer living in Stockholm. So that's been a wonderful collaboration as well. You learn so much about the inside business. What is really important um, in terms of flagging to potential publishers you know, it's, it's really difficult to, to teach yourself things when you're not in an industry. You don't know what you don't know. My friend in Sweden had been to the Stockholm Book Festival and she had some great experience listening to some publishers from Bookature who are um, uh, an arm of Hachette UK. They are one of the few that uh, take direct submissions. So I just sent it off to Bookature knowing that they had a great reputation and within two weeks I'd heard that they wanted to work with me. I got a two book deal with them and they were brilliant. So my first book is Good Little Liars. It's a mystery. It's set in Tasmania. The Write Your Novel course was brilliant um, and certainly I know that without it I wouldn't have gotten a book deal. So through the Australian Writers' Centre um, I've discovered that um, to write a novel it can take a village so it's a bit like raising a child. You, you're sometimes too close to your own work and taking away the um, ego from your work and having it stripped down um, to in all its flaws and workshopped can make it so much better. And I've also learned that it, um, writing is an ongoing process of learning so you can never learn enough and there's always something else to learn. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got? Well, this week we are talking to Craig Sylvie and Yay! he, um, yeah, he, um, I'm going to read you the intro because when I was talking to him, I, you know, we, we were kind of like busy doing other things. So I'm going to read you the intro, but uh, suffice to say it was a really interesting conversation. We actually spoke just before his new novel, Honey Bee, came out. Um, and so, you know, we're bringing it to you as quickly as we as we could. Um, and we had quite an interesting conversation about his process 
uh, for writing not only this novel but um, other novels. And I was really interested in talking to Craig because his uh, second novel, Jasper Jones, um, which was released in 2009, was a a big favourite in this household um, across Mm. the generations. Like it was one of those books that, you know, I really liked, my husband really liked, my uh, my dad really liked, my, you know, book boy loved it, um, which is a really, it's not an easy thing to do to write a novel like that. Um, So we had a great conversation about what it was like to write a book after that um, because I think that that's always an interesting thing as well. But anyway, let's have a talk to Craig, but let me just take a deep breath and I'm going (laughs) to pull out my best radio intro voice and I'm going to intro him and then we'll head on into it. Craig Sylvie is a best-selling author and screenwriter from Western Australia. His critically acclaimed debut novel, Rhubarb, was published in 2004. His best-selling second novel, Jasper Jones, was released in 2009 and is considered a modern Australian classic, having won plaudits in three continents, including an International Dublin Literary Award shortlisting, a Michael J. Prince Award honour and a Miles Franklin Literary Award shortlisting. Jasper Jones was the Australian book industry Awards Book of the Year for 2010 and has been adapted for stage and screen. Craig's third novel, Honey Bee, is out now. Welcome to the program, Craig. It is absolutely my pleasure. All right, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to cast our minds back into the eons of time and we're going to talk about Rhubarb, which was published in 2004 and was your debut novel, um, which you wrote when you were 19. Now, how did that novel come to be published? Well, it came to be published after a protracted period of of, of waiting, uh, some rejections, uh, not entirely knowing what I was doing. Uh, largely my processes, I, I mean, I was, I started Rhubarb when I was 16. I started doing notes on that novel and, you know, it, it became my apprenticeship more or less. It took me three years to write and I finished it uh, uh, just after my 19th birthday uh, and it took a long while to get published. Um my process initially, my dream was always to, to enter it into the Vogel Awards because uh, that that was largely for me at that age that the the, uh, the only clear path that I saw to potentially getting published. I didn't know a thing about the industry or, or uh, the machinations thereof. And so I sent it through to the Vogel Awards, uh, I think maybe 48 hours before the uh, uh, the end of... Um, uh, the, the time that I'd be available um, and fortunately I made a kind of short list and uh, Rhubarb was one of the few books that were actually uh, sent on to Alan and Unwin uh, for, for further analysis and believe it or not I never actually heard back from them <laughs> but during that time I sent it out uh, I, I had a wonderful editor there at Alan Unwin who actually um, uh Spruiked on my behalf and sent it out to other publishers and um, uh, and and had it read elsewhere. So for a period of time, I had just received these very kind, very lovely rejection slips. Um, until a couple of year, a couple of years later, um, I, it was read by Fremantle Press. Uh, I got I got the manuscript through to an editor there. Uh, who read it over a weekend, fell in love with it, and offered me a contract on the Monday. So uh, after a protracted period of waiting, it actually happened quite rapidly. So how old were you when it actually um, when it was published? How old were you in twenty? Yes, so I was yeah, so I was about twenty one, I think, when when uh, when it finally hit the shelf. Yeah, so it was a long okay. period of time. Yeah, so still young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? You're still young. Let's face it. What did the um? What did the published version, like, was the published version of Rhubarb very different to what you had finished at 19, or was it almost like it just sort of came out as it as you had written it? Look, from memory, I mean, my goodness, it was uh, yeah, 15 years ago, yeah. Uh, from memory, the, the, uh, structurally, everything was fairly sound. It wasn't a difficult edit uh, from memory. I think there were a few tweaks here and there. Um, but we were largely good to go. It certainly wasn't um, too too rigorous or, or, or too difficult. Um, I've never been in the situation where I've had, on the advice of editors, had to go back and restructure um, uh, to any large degree. I do a lot of that myself. Um, mm-hmm. 
very de- deliberate about what goes down on the page, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very clued into how a book needs to be structured, and so I won't embark upon it. I won't develop my manuscript until I'm fairly certain about how it's going to be structured, because that's, those foundations are, are the most important part. Um, so I'll be very patient until that, um, that emerges for me, uh, and from that point on, I don't really look back. All right. So, given that, um, and given that the structure is such a, you know, foundational sort of element for you, where do you start? Um, you know, like, okay, there you are at sixteen, and you think to yourself, "I'm going to start writing a novel," right. um, and off you go. Like for starters, big, big call. Um, but you know, like, where where does Craig Sylvie start with writing a novel? Do you start with a character? Do you start with a theme? Like, what sort of? I mean, obviously, you know, things may have developed for you now. We're fifteen years down the track, but um, has your process changed a lot? Process. Look, I, to answer your question, I always start with character. Um, the, the character is where I live and breathe as a novelist, and, and character is where I'm most engaged as a reader. Um, it's, it's often somebody whose journey I want to follow, uh, somebody I want to understand a little better, somebody who's haunting my thoughts, um, and they lead me down a path and, uh, and potentially and hopefully to somewhere interesting. Um, and that's when I, that's that's where I'll uh, recognise whether or not there's a novel there. There's there's something uh, sophisticated enough, something substantive enough to to commit to the page. So for rhubarb, you know, I just had this vignette of uh, of a visually impaired woman walking in the streets of Fremantle with a guide dog that was fiercely loyal, but. Uh, um, you know, uh, easily distracted, um, and I just uh, and who heard uh, the, the whistle of a cello on the breeze and reacted to it in a way that was that was unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, it was that it was that meeting, you know, that that well, they meet cute, they call it in the in the film industry, you know, that that yeah. uh, that yeah. led me to to want to pursue this story a little more and understand these characters uh, a little better and and uh, and why they would mean so much to each other. So from that character, do you then, like, so um, taking sort of maybe a different novel, like taking Jasper Jones, which was released five years later, um, and is a massive, you know, favourite in this household across the generations, is, is, you know, where did that start? Did that start with... A particular character and then do you plot the book out before you start writing to make sure that that structure is correct or are you just sort of following that character and redrafting your way to structure right well Jasper Jones emerged as a as a name believe it or not um, and it right. was a sort of distant figure so that it, uh, the, the name kept echoing around in my brain and and wouldn't quite leave me it was sort of beckoning me you know and after a while, uh, uh, a figure emerged that that corresponded with it, but I couldn't, still couldn't quite understand who Jasper Jones was, and 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 uh, why I was thinking about him so much, until uh, until I developed Charlie Buckton, who was the, the story's narrator, and mm. was ultimately the person who led me towards Jasper. Um, and so that's how that's how that book started, and and you know I was a little bit like Charlie Buckton, following Jasper Jones. Uh, out into the glade mm. at night to to understand uh, why it was he'd sort of uh, come to interrupt my life. Um, and as soon as uh, as soon as I had that uh, that that central question, that challenge, um, that the conundrum that Jasper Jones was faced with, the fact that he knew he would get blamed for this event, uh, and he needed Charlie's help uh, to exonerate him uh that's when i knew i had a novel and the the structure emerged from that relatively straightforwardly it's a fairly linear novel um and charlie's voice was the most qualified to to tell that story um given that uh, we, we follow his his journey to maturity um so i didn't really second guess that um in terms of how much 
plot I'd mapped out prior to embarking on the novel. Not a great deal. Um, you know, I, I knew I was uh, embedded in the 1960s. I knew I was in a country town, uh, and I knew this kid was telling our story, and I knew we had a mystery to solve. Um, but those large plot elements weren't necessarily um, open to me upon embarking on the story. So it was a period of discovery for me as, as, as well as Charlie. Okay. Did the success of Jasper Jones and this idea of having written a modern Australian classic, did that change you as a writer? Did that change your process or, um, you know, did it have that sort of impact? Did you have, you know, third novel syndrome? No, I don't think so. I mean, I still attend to the same desk that I've always sat at and, you know, the, the blank page is as frightening as it's ever been. Um, it's, you're certainly more aware of audience and the scope of audience uh, as, as your career develops. Um, and particularly if you've been as, as fortunate as I have, you know, I'm, I'm very well supported and I'm enormously grateful for that and I'm uh, acutely aware of uh, how fortunate I am. So my notions of audience are certainly broader than I'd ever imagined, um, uh, you know, extending beyond Western Australia, beyond Australia, uh, into uh, a more universal uh, translated audience. It's quite, it's quite an amazing thing. Mm. But the trap you can fall into is trying to please so many disparate uh, um, uh, and wildly different readers. Um, I think mm. you've just got to attend to the story. That's the most important thing. Um, so for me, my fidelity belongs to the characters that I'm developing and the story that they're in. And so what I tend to try to do as much as I can is actually displace any um, uh, knowledge that I'm a writer with a career uh, with a publishing industry at, at the end of it. Um, the two are very separate for me. When I'm developing a novel, okay. it's, it's all about uh, the story itself um, and my connection to these characters and, and trying to tease them into, into life. Um, notions of uh, you know, anxiety and terror at the prospect of not living up to expectations or disappointing hundreds of thousands of people tend to not occur to me uh, until now <laughs> when I'm asked about it. Yes, exactly. When, uh, when uh, you know, I'm a week out from release and um, I'm uh, fighting to death that uh, <laughs> a lot of people who... Uh, Sorry about that. Yeah, no, that's uh, fine. <laughs> um, no, it's, um, it, it just doesn't help. Um, you know, it's, no. it's, it's nice to kind of, uh, it, it's a nice ballast, of course, to, to remind yourself that uh, people believe in you and they go a long way mm. to assuage your doubts some days that, um, that, that people do enjoy your work and that's, you know, you are a, mm. uh, a who can do it. Um, but for the, for the most part, I just try to forget who I am and forget that, that I have an authorial voice and when it works the best, when my writing is the most pure, is when I vanish and the only thing that exists are the characters that, uh, and, and, and the story that, that's, that's, that I'm trying to tease into being. Speaking of your characters, you've, your, your, your characters have been adapted for screen and for stage. Um, did adapting you know, Jasper Jones for those different mediums, did that, did that make you think about your characters or your process or your writing in a different way at all? Oh, of course. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what it allowed me to do, what, what uh, translating Jasper Jones in particular to, to screen allowed me to do was to um, uh, enrich some of the supporting cast. So Jasper Jones is told from the perspective of a 14-year-old boy. And uh, mm. so through that lens, uh, certain characters are, are going to be flavoured I suppose. So, so mm. take, for example, mm. Charlie's relationship with his mother. Uh, you know, it's tempestuous and uh, difficult, um, and we're seeing it through Charlie's fairly naive lens. What mm. writing the, the, the screenplay allowed me to do was flesh Ruth out and uh, let her live and breathe of her own accord and to, and to give her a more, uh, you know, omniscient, uh, write a reply. And so she became, mm. to my mind, a, a, a more well-rounded character 
um, you know, warts and all, you know, her flaws are still uh, available to see, but I think there's a little more context um, just by virtue of the fact that we can see her maybe more plainly um, uh, that, that allow us to maybe empathise with her a little bit more and, and understand uh, some of her frustrations and, and why she is the way she is. So uh, opportunities mm-hmm. like that were a, a real blessing for me. I really enjoyed uh, being able to, to write her character uh, through a broader lens. And now we have your third novel, Honeybee. Um, so without spoilers, can you tell us about how that story developed for you? Did, I mean, did you start again with the character? Um, did you have themes in mind that you wanted to explore? Like where, where did Honeybee, you know, begin for you? Yes, well, you know, I'm invariably asked where my ideas do come from, and I, I, I try to willfully evade those questions because it's not easy. It's, it's a difficult thing. Um, oftentimes, yeah. uh, you, you don't know why uh, a certain character or a certain voice or a certain vignette is so arresting to you. You just have an instinct, um, uh, an intuition that there is a story there. However, Honeybee actually stems from a real event, uh, and uh, it became, I suppose, the genesis for the story. Um, mm. late one night a few years ago now my brother was picking up his partner from the airport and he was driving her home and they drove over the Canning Highway overpass here in Perth and through the corner of his eye he saw a young person who was standing over the other side of the rail and looking down and so he pulled over and he called the police uh, while his partner got out her name is Sam and she approached this young person um, largely with the ambition to essentially distract them while help uh, was on the way. And after my brother called the police, uh, he got in contact with me. He texted me and I was sitting right here at my desk working uh, and I was immediately connected to this moment. I was worried. I was concerned. I was heartbroken. Uh, and I continued to get uh, updates from my, my brother who was largely sort of watching on from this point. Mm. And Sam approached this young person uh, and they talked about everything and nothing until this person volunteered the reasons why they were there and Mm -hmm. they were struggling with uh, issues surrounding their gender identity. Um, They Mm -hmm. had come from a place of of no support. Um, They'd lost the support of their family and their friends. They'd been kicked out of home. Uh, and they found themselves in a place of anguish and hopelessness and helplessness, and this is what had led them uh, to this bridge. And soon after, the police turned up in an ambulance, and the police uh, were quite brusque. You know, they, they, they grabbed this young person, they, they pulled them over the side of the railing, and they sort of deposited them in the back of an ambulance. Um, Sam, my sister-in-law, was summarily dismissed, uh, and that was that. Um, we tried in vain. For the uh, in the ensuing days to reconnect with this person, we were worried about them. We wanted to, to check in, see if they were okay. But unfortunately, they have a very common name, and so uh, they were difficult to, to track down. And so for me, okay. uh, I, I was left with uh, a very real person and a very real event, but they existed solely in my imagination, and I wanted to understand them better uh, and to. Uh, uh, to, to come to terms with, with, with what had happened and, and to, to, to know their story. Um, and so for me, my process has always been when, when faced with uh, things that I don't understand and in time of trying to process the abstract, I want to write about it and I want to read about it. Uh, and so I conceived of a story uh, where a young person... Uh, connects with uh, a contrasting figure uh, on a bridge late one night uh, and they are both there for largely the same reason and they both uh, have a a positive impact on on each other's lives and that was uh, the beginning of Honeybear. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because the opening pages of the novel are so immediate and 
quite confronting. Um, and I wondered whether they had evolved through the drafting process in the sense that, you know, um, as a writer, I often start my stories in the wrong place and then have to go back and fix them. But it, he hearing you tell that story, I can hear that that opening was always there, wasn't it? That was always the opening for you? Uh, yes. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it was the moment yeah. that, uh, well, it, it wasn't always easy. Uh, it wasn't until I conceived of, uh, you know, our support character. So, uh, so just to just to pitch the story, I suppose to uh, yeah. clarify things for for listeners, Honeybee begins with a young uh, teenager called Sam Watson who steps onto a, a quiet traffic bridge in the middle of the night uh, and climbs over the rail and looks down uh, with the intention of ending their life and. They look across to the other end of the bridge and they see an old man whose name is Vic. And he's smoking his last cigarette uh, and he is intending, uh, or he's intending to end his own struggle. And the two see each other across the void and uh, their fates are forever changed. Um, and Honeybee is largely about the relationship that blooms between the two of them and their efforts to save each other. Um, mm. And from a bleak beginning emerges uh, what I what I hope to be a, a very optimistic and life affirming, hopeful book um, about mm. the importance of support and love and understanding. Um, and I suppose mm. uh, for, for me, I, uh, I I wanted to I wanted to give give a story to to this person who I hadn't met um, and who I was hoping for and, and worried about. So this is another Craig Sylvie novel for me, um, much like Jasper Jones, where the, the voice of the narrator is immediately apparent and draws you in. How long did it take you to find that voice for Sam? Yeah, a, a little while, a little while. You, for, for me, it's just, it tends to be about cogitation and rumination and patience. Um, it's it's a little like meeting another human being for the first time, meeting a stranger. You've got to spend time with them in order to understand them and you've got to uh, put them under pressure. You've got to work out how they're going to respond to things, how they might react and, and let them emerge of their own accord, trying to stuff words into their mouth and trying to uh, force them into, into a certain patois, um, uh, just doesn't work. It never feels authentic. And so you've just got to be patient. You've got to wait for them to come to you. And I know that sounds a little bit absurd because they don't exist, but, uh, uh, but it tends to be the way it, it works for me. Um, and so there were a few aborted attempts to start Honeybee. It actually began as a, as a one-act play. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, I, yeah, by no means am I a thespian. Um, uh, I'm a lousy playwright, but... For whatever reason, I thought this might be the way to tell this story. You know, I conceived of a sort of suspended stage, um, uh, which um, kind of would present the audience a bit of danger, and and you know, the the one act would uh, be two people sort of slowly uh, coming together over the course of the play. Uh, it wasn't the best way to tell this story, obviously, um, but that. That was more or less a kind of character exercise for me, I suppose, to, to understand um, who was inhabiting this, this story and why. Um, so that gave me a little bit of, of material to, to begin the novel with. What about the, the process of sharing an experience that's not your experience, like Sam's experience is not your experience? So how did you like, research and, and you know, navigate that, that process? Right. I mean, I, I'm acutely aware that Sam's journey in Honeybee is not my lived experience. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm a novelist, so it's inevitable that I'm going to encounter uh, characters and uh, narrative elements that don't represent my personal history. Um, mm -hmm. This isn't in itself an, un an unethical proposition, but it can be approached unethically. Um, but it's always been very, very important to me that I write from a place of sensitivity and respect and understanding when I am 
detailing stories that don't adhere to my lived experience. Um, yeah. And so what this requires of me is to listen and to learn uh, and to consult in order to uh, authentically articulate someone else's experience. And so that, that was largely what informed uh, my process in, uh, in discovering Sam's voice and in detailing the events of Honeybee. So I read countless testimonies. Um, you know, I watched video confessionals. I uh, connected with support networks. And uh, most importantly, I was able to, to meet with and consult uh, with a number of uh, trans and, and gender diverse people who very generously lent me the, the, their time and their stories um, and answered my questions. Uh, and I owe a great debt of gratitude to, to those people. Um, I couldn't have written Honeybee without their contribution uh, and I wouldn't have written it without their blessing. Um, so yeah. uh, that, that, that went a, a long way towards informing my, my process. Look, for me... Um, you know that that there should be. Uh, I I believe there should be extra scrutiny placed on me as somebody uh, who uh, is detailing a story that is not my own, uh, and it's up to me to reassure readers that of my credentials as an ally, uh, but also that my process has been ethical and sound. Um, and I believe that it boils down to, to three things. And I think it's in your intention, your process, and your execution, namely the, the why, the how, and the what. And um, you know, I feel confident that I can describe to, to readers um, uh, precisely what they are and, and, stand, and stand behind them, you know. It's um it's interesting too because you know um, I guess you know Sam comes up across uh, comes across some incredibly unlikable characters in this novel. Uh, the media release actually puts that a lot more strongly than I do. But it's um it's really difficult to read at times. Like um you know there's a lot of it's uh, Sam's voice is very um, you know sympathetic and and you know you you're right there. Um, how do you manage that as a writer? Like you, I'd imagine the difficult to read scenes are also difficult to write scenes. So are you ever kind of surprised by what's appearing on the page, like what's coming out of that subconscious of yours? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, look, some, some, days, <laughs> some days it's difficult to, to sit at the office, you know, and, and you dread some scenes that are coming. There are certain moments mm. in Honeybee that are devastating, um, that, that are heartbreaking. And among some of the most difficult scenes in my career that uh, that I've ever had to write, um, you know, I haven't. <laughs> it, it sounds a bit absurd, but you know, I haven't been in a situation where I've been in tears at my office. But uh, I, I had that experience with, with Honeybee. Uh, such was my affection mm. for these characters, and such was my concern for them. Um, mm. And so, you know, emotionally, it, it it can be a difficult place to to get to. It's a little a little bit like an actor inhabiting a, a character. You need to do so emotionally in order to um, authentically uh, render these people to the, to the page. Um, mm. And so, yes, some, some days you've just got to enter uh, places in your psyche that you'd rather not um, and that, yeah, do scare you and terrify you uh, and concern you. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's a real joy to write the nice things by, by all means. And, uh, and there are plenty of those yeah. in Honeybee, but, uh, but, but those dark raw elements, uh, some days were, were really not too pleasurable to sit inside. Um, I love, uh, Sam's passion for food and that sort of recurring, you know, uh, thing. And I just wondered where that had come from in the development of Sam from I sort of idea, that initial idea to, to 3d character. It, it's, um, it's just such a particular detail. Right. Yeah. Learning to cook, you know, watching the videos. Yeah. Well, it's, it stems from a couple of things, but they can be connected essentially by, uh, a paucity of nourishment. I suppose so. Mm. 
so Sam grows up in, in quite an insecure, neglectful uh, household, um, and a couple of things that are missing are, you know, a, a consistent, loving guardian uh, and food. And so what uh, to compensate for that, uh, Sam discovers Julia Child on YouTube <laughs> and watches episodes of The French Chef. <laughs> And feels as though Julia watches with watches it with such obsession that she that Sam feels as though Julia Child is her grandparent and uh, you know is speaking strictly to her. Um, and such, you know, we tend to value the things that uh, are in short supply in our lives, and food is one of those for Sam. And so, valuing food to to, to such a degree, uh, I think, informs the. The, the care she takes over preparing food, um, and yeah. uh, and also it connects back to the fact that she can do it. She's good at it, um, and she can provide for people. Uh, all these things uh, sort of trace back to the fundamentals of her character. Um, so, mm. so cooking uh, feels as though it's something that's that's uh, intrinsic to to her. Um, and so, yeah, it 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 it, it all uh, it all informs back to, to to the fundamentals of who Sam is and and why. Well, I'm sure that um, there's going to be a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, a lot of people having a lot to say about Honeybee in the future. Um, but given there's a few years between your novels, what sorts of things do you do to promote them? Like, I mean, obviously you're talking to me. You're, I think you're pretty much on a treadmill of, of publicity, interviews, etc. But do you do um, stuff between books at all? Like, are you active on social media? Like, are you you know out there doing it or or not so much? Yeah, I, I certainly am. I mean, it's. Uh... A, a novelist lead, leads a kind of bifurcated life where uh, when you're developing a novel, it's very private, it's very sequestered um, uh, and solitudinous. Um, and you, you, as I mentioned, you try to sort of displace anything that might intrude upon that. Um, and then there's this crossover period where that idea, that, that, that uh, ghost-like notion of a story um, becomes real. It is printed. It becomes a book. It's something that you can hold mm. and something that you can offer to, to other people. Um, and that's when the private life actually becomes a very, very public one. Um, if you're a fortunate author, uh, such as myself, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and so then your life completely changes. You go from a very private world to, to a very public one where you're, uh, you're, you're out advocating for your work and encouraging people to read it, uh, and you have the great honour of uh, of having readers respond to your work. Um, and depending on the trajectory of any given novel, um, that process can take anywhere between a few weeks to a few years. Um, you know, I, I had the benefit of touring Jasper Jones for for a long while, uh, not just in Australia yeah. but but overseas. Um, and the the longer uh, between you finishing the draft of a manuscript uh, and uh, it having its journey on the shelf, the further away an author gets away from it and the more you appreciate that it's not yours anymore. And so you become a kind of curator for your book. Uh, You become loosely attached to it, but it actually belongs to everybody else. It's it's an amazing thing. Um, And so... Who can say how long I'll be uh, spruiking Honeybee? With any sort of luck, I'll have the great benefit of, of touring around and connecting with readers, which I love to do um, for you know many months, if not years. Um, I, I really love that that aspect of it, and I love Australian reading culture. Um, it's uh, it's it's something that's never lost on me just how generous uh, and supportive our readers are here, and, and how strong our, our literary culture is. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Will, will you be writing? You know, will you be working on other things at all while that all that's going on, or do you wait until all that is over before you sort of start to ferment something new? Right. Yeah. No. I. I it's unlikely I'd be working on a novel during that time um, because yep. the the two just for, for me anyway the two just can't coexist. Um, yeah, but I, I, I disappear from public view when I'm working on a novel and, and I just vanish. Um, and then I 
yep. reemerge blinking from my dank dark office. <laughs> um, right, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, I, I think the only creative work I might be able to get done is uh, some film work, just because the turnaround is a little tends to be uh, a little shallower. So I can spend maybe a couple yeah. of months, three months on something and disappear into it and then emerge. It's it's nothing yeah. okay. comparable to the undertaking of a novel, for example. Yeah, okay. All right, well, we're going to finish up today, Craig, with your uh, three top tips for writers, which is what we ask all of our willing subjects of, you know, who are dragged on here kicking and screaming. Um, but so if you could just let us know what your three top tips for writers are. Uh, okay. Um, well, uh, other than don't take advice from other writers, um, I would I would suggest <laughs> look. The, the most important thing, ultimately, uh, you can do as a writer is probably something that most writers do anyway, naturally. But that's to read. Um, try to read as broadly as you can, as often as you can, um, as deeply as you can, uh, and that will go a long way to to informing. Um, how you generate your own voice and, and how you assemble your own writing. You'll get an intuitive sense of what works and what doesn't um, and, and how to structure something um, that's germane to, to the story that you're trying to tell. The other piece of, advice, a piece of advice maybe I'd offer is to be patient. Um, you know, it's, it is a long, protracted, difficult process trying to to tease a novel in, into being um, and just allow yourself the time uh, to develop something um, of merit and worth. Don't worry about word counts or volume or any of these things that are largely extraneous. They do not matter. Um, musicians don't work to, to note counts and I have no idea why any writer would ever work to a word count. It's, it's meaningless. Um, and, and it's a kind of hollow appraisal, actually. It's, it's not a way to genuinely adjudicate um, uh, how well something is going. Um, more often than not, if you're writing to a word count, all you're doing is presenting yourself with more editing work. So just be careful about what you put down on the page and allow yourself the time to, to breathe and think and uh, and and plot things out slowly. Um, and the last piece of advice, I suppose, is that I just advise people to write for the love of it. Um, mm. Don't write with anything, uh, with any greater ambition than attending to the story itself and the characters therein. Um, try to forget about uh, publishing and uh response and readers and audience and, and all these things that are ultimately beyond your control. Um, the things that we need to attend to mostly as, as a writer, uh, the story that, that you're passionate about. Um, uh, it's, it's really the only thing that, that we can attend to um, w with any degree of control. And so write because you love it, write because it's good for your soul um, and write because it's, uh, something that you just need to do. You know, it fulfills that part of yourself that uh, that you don't quite understand. Um, and, and so don't lose sight of that. Um, and, uh, you know, once it's all finished, then, then the other stuff can, can come in and you can attend to that. But, but during a period of creative development, just, just write because it's what you do and it's who you are. Brilliant advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Craig Sylvie. Best of luck with the new novel. I'm sure, as I said, we'll be hearing a lot about it and uh, no doubt you'll be talking about it for, as you say, many, many months to come. So um, I hope it all goes gangbusters for you. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. There we go. Great interview, Al. Craig Sylvie. That was awesome. Yeah, it was, well, you know, like um, as I said in the interview, like the – and. Jasper Jones is a big favourite. So it was really interesting to talk to him about his process. And um, I think it's always fascinating for me. Every author interview that we do is fascinating because yes. there are so many different approaches and so many different mm -hmm. ways of doing things. And I, I just I honestly feel like I hope that the one message that comes across to all of the people who are listening to us who are aspiring authors and, you know, are, are starting out on the journey or however far along they are is is just that, that, that there's mm. no one way to do it. And, yes. you know, no matter how you're doing it, 
everyone is going to have a day where they feel like they're doing it wrong. Like, trust me, trust me, everyone. <laughs> um, and then, you know, but there's no right way. There's only your way. And you just have to basically, you know, keep pushing along. And, you know, I mean, Craig takes years to write one one novel. Other people are putting out one a year. Like it's Some there's just more no, than one. Some more, or than, more one. than one. Or more yeah. than one. Um, there's just no, you know, there's no one one way to go about it. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing, pushing yes. forward. I think that's the key, getting it Definitely. done. Definitely. Mm. All right, we've come to the end of this week's episode. I hope that you guys are enjoying our in-between-isodes. Um, we thought that we'd bring them to you and bring the bookshop to you because then you don't have to um, – you can still buy a book from the bookshop, but we're bringing you Chapter 1 of um, certain books that we've curated that we hope you will enjoy in episodes that drop in between our regular programming. So hopefully you're enjoying those. Anyway, Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Uh, editing. I'm editing. Oh, I'm yes. going to be editing. It feels like I'm going to be editing until about 2025 at the moment, but I'm sure that won't be the case because my deadline is the 15th of October. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> That's soon. Good. I'll leave you alone then. Yep, <laughs> All right. Where, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Make sure you join Alison and I in the Facebook group. It's free to join. Uh, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Fantastic group of people, um, all really supportive and great to see the conversations that are happening in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>